All right. So 1 Corinthians is where we're at this morning. Uh, chapter 11. Um, so go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or your phones or your tablets or whatnot. While you're getting there, let me give you some backstory. So <clears throat> Paul wrote a letter to a church called Corinth. And in Corinth, uh, Corinth was a trade city. It was uh, a popular city at this particular time when this letter was written. He wrote this letter from Ephesus. And Paul was a church planter. He would go into a community. He would do his trade, which was tent making. And uh, he would preach the gospel. People would get saved and a church would be born. And then he would move on to, this, to the next place. And so uh, he was in the habit of basically these churches that he had uh, fathered or kind of helped raise up. If he heard of issues or good things that were going on, he would write them letters. And that's why we have two-thirds of the New Testament is because we have books like First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians and uh, Thessalonians and so on and so forth. And so uh, he would write to these church bodies that he had helped uh, participate in birthing. And sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. In this particular case, it was not a, uh, a very uh, good letter. Uh, well, in, in parts of it were good. Have you ever been um, disciplined by the Lord? Um, that happens quite frequently. And I love, like, God is such a good father because what will happen in my life is, like, he'll, he'll discipline me, meaning, like, he'll, he'll help shape me into who I'm becoming. And I'll realize like two or three days later that he basically rebuked me. Like I got a spanking, but I didn't even realize it. Like two days later, I'll be like, God, wow, that like you really got on to me there. And that was pretty harsh, but somehow it, it didn't hurt. <laughs> it, there's like this, this beautiful thing that happens. And uh, Paul is doing this in the church in Corinth because what had happened is because this church was a trade uh, because the community in Corinth was like a trade place, there was constantly uh, wealthy merchants, people that were coming in and coming out. And so because of that, this little church that had been birthed uh, was exposed to a bunch of different belief systems. And so they had to fight and they had to struggle to kind of stay together. One of the things that they did is they had this thing called an agape meal or a love feast. That's what the word agape means. And uh, this agape feast for the people that were pagans, that were not Christians, that were not a part, they heard of this love feast. And you can only assume, I'm not going to get like too X-rated or anything because I know we got kids in here. But when you think of the word love feast, you don't just think of food, right? And so uh, this idea that Christians were kind of crazy and weird and out there like started growing and all these other influences started showing up. And Paul is writing in this particular section in 1 Corinthians 11 saying, hey guys, we need, to, we need to rethink this whole idea of the Lord's Supper or the love feast as it was called back then. Now, uh, one of the issues that arose is, uh, let's just say, for instance, uh, if we were in ancient Corinth today... There would be a little house church uh, down the road of about 10 or 15 um, because 
you know, a family would have a little house church there. And then a little bit further down the road, there might be a really wealthy guy. And he would have a house church of 50 or 60 because his house was bigger. And then a little bit down the road, there would be another guy. And he had a really tiny house. And so he'd have like a little house church of 5 or 10. And they would get together. And all of Corinth was made up of these tiny little house churches. And they were all known as the Church of Christ in Corinth. So when he was writing, the letters were intended to be circulated among all the believers. And what began to happen is in this this agape meal that was being given, there began to be division. And the reason why there was division is because some people, like I said, that were very wealthy and had the big house, they would call all the people together and say, we're going to do the agape meal at my house because I can hold 100 people. And what would happen is you have all these wealthy people who didn't have to work because they were, you know, wealthy and they had money and so on and so forth. And they had plenty of food and all that stuff. And uh, they would begin the love feast. And by the end of the day, when the lower class people who were poor that had to work for a living and they had to go to work every day and they could barely, uh, you know, scrimp by with what they had, by the time that they showed up, All the food had been eaten, all the wine had been drunk, um, and there began began to be this great division in the church. And so what Paul does is he does this thing that I call an encouragement sandwich. He starts with, hey, you guys are doing really good in this. Hey, you guys are doing really bad in this. Hey, you're doing good in this. He kind of sandwiches this admonition or this correction in between two things where he's encouraging them. And so because of something that was intended to bring unity, uh, it began to bring division. So let's jump in in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Let's start in verse 17. He says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Hang on, on for just a minute on that. He says, in the following instructions, I don't commend you. Um, in, in its original language, the word instructions means that someone is a messenger bringing a message of authority. Like, for instance, if a king in this day were to write a law, the king would take messengers and he would write the law out and give the messen- to the messengers and the messengers would go out to all the different places in the community and they would give the word that the king said. And if a messenger came with the word from the king, it was as if the king himself was talking. And so Paul is saying, I'm giving you instruction or I'm giving you a word from the Lord. I am the messenger. I'm giving you a word from the Lord. And I cannot commend you in this. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. When he says you can't be commended, he's saying the word commended means to draw praise. To, to, to have praise be over you. And the root from the word praise literally means to write a story. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, I am a messenger of the Lord, and I cannot, uh, you, you cannot be given praise from God 
God cannot write his story in this particular area of your life until the body comes under the message given by the messenger carrying that authority. Does that make sense? So he's saying there's a particular area in your life that God's praise cannot rest on because there's disunity that is happening. He says when you come together, it's for the better, not, uh, it's not for better but for worse. To come together literally means intimate unity. Intimate unity. Once again, I'm not going to go too deep because we have young ears in the room, but you guys understand what intimacy means. And in Scripture, there, there is a deep connotation of what, what Paul is talking about when he talks about the body of Christ, the family of Christ coming together for intimacy. To, be, to know each other very closely, to be like a family. And he's saying when you come together, it's not for better, but it's for worse. The word better literally means that God's dominion is resting over something. That you've come to a place where you've matured and you've grown. And, and the result is better, not worse. So Paul is saying, because of this disunity that's happening in the church, God's praise cannot rest over this particular area of the church or your life because uh, of the disunity that's going on, and the result is something that is worse, not better. In other words, God's dominion isn't ruling over this thing. Over this area of the love feast, God's rule is not ruling. You know, it makes me think of um, in a marriage, you know, uh, those of you who are married in this room, you've encountered this before. You've stood before uh, um, a pastor and your spouse and however many people you had there at your gathering, and you said, you know, something like, for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, right? Um, now, when we took those vows to walk in community with our spouse, the assumption on probably all of our minds is that it's going to, for the most part, be better, not worse. For the most part, it's going to be richer and not poorer. For the most part, it's going to be health and not sickness. And please don't die, right? Now, if you ever come to the place where you're thinking, my spouse needs to die, uh, my situation is sick, uh, this is worse, um, okay, we need to help you with some marriage counseling, okay? Now, that's not us. None of us are marriage counselors, but we've got good ones. So you can email Josh Stegenga, jstegenga at hopecitync.com, and he will help you with that. But it's like a marriage. Paul is saying, when, when you come together, the purpose is unity. The purpose is oneness. And instead of that, instead of God's dominion and his praise being over this thing, what's happening is there's division. It's something that is worse. He says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, the word church means those that are called out. So the called out, the ones who are saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, the called out I hear that there's division among you. And I believe it in part. The word division, it just means there's a split. 
There's splits that are happening. There's division among you. And I believe that in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So watch this, okay? The word faction means basically to make decisions. And so what's happening is Paul is saying there are decisions that are being made in the church that is creating division. But those choices, those decisions that create factions, it's not that those are bad because that happens in order that those who are genuine might be recognized. The word recognized means to like shine a light on something, that something becomes elevated to the point that you can see it. And so what he's saying, um, in Bible times, uh, whenever they exchanged, or they began to exchange money for, for things, instead of just bartering, you know, stuff for stuff, and they began to actually exchange money for things, um, what people who were dishonest, if they owned a business and they were dishonest, what they realized is they could actually take the coin that, of whatever metal that that coin was made from, and they could begin to shave the outside of it just a little bit. Not enough to really affect it, but if it was like an overstrike type coin, they could kind of shave off a little bit of that metal and keep it for themselves. And if they did that enough, they shaved off enough metal, they shaved off enough precious metal, eventually they got enough to make another coin. And then they would begin to counterfeit. And so the government recognized this and they go, oh shoot, we got to figure out how to like weigh these coins. We got to figure out how to, how to process them and, and make them a certain way so that they can't be counterfeited. And so what Paul is saying is he's, he's saying the decisions that are being made, when those are made, they will show who is genuine. In other words, who isn't shaving off stuff. <laughs> Who's not one that's giving into that. And in that genuine nature, that righteousness, that person, that thing will be elevated to a point that it can be seen. Now, trust me, I'm going somewhere, okay? Because I know you guys are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> right? I thought we were talking about the Lord's Supper, right? We are. Trust me, I'm going somewhere with this. He says that the genuine, those who have passed the test, those who are acceptable, um, they're, they're tested they're not counterfeit. They will be recognized. They'll shine. They'll be seen visibly. So the thing is, is whenever we make choices, if a choice that we make results in division, the way that we bring it back into unity is by applying the body and the blood of Jesus to that thing. So think about this in your own life, okay? Whenever you make a decision, if you're not sure about it, if a decision that you have made creates division, because listen, sometimes in our job, we work with immoral people, right? We work with people that don't love the Lord. Maybe even in our families, there are people that don't love the Lord. Maybe in our circles, there are dishonest people. If there are no dishonest people, you might be the dishonest person. I'm just kidding. Um, but... In those places, when you make a decision, it's going to create division. And so the way that you know that that decision is right is by applying the body and the blood of Jesus to it. You make it obedient to the body and the blood of Jesus. You go, okay, 
is that decision that I made, is that honoring to the Lord? Is God's body and his blood uh, sufficient? Does it cover that thing? That's the thought process that we begin to think through. In Romans chapter 12, it's not going to be on the screen, but it says that we're called to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's a, it's a spiritual act of worship that we don't become conformed to the matters of the world, but we be, are willing to be transformed by God renewing our mind, literally changing who we are, changing our thought processes so that our decisions become honoring to him. We begin to think like God. Paul goes on. I want to skip the part where he, he talks about the communion stuff because we're, we're getting there. He goes on in verse 27. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Like, that's heavy. Happy Memorial Day. Come back later and eat a hamburger and a hot dog with us. Amen. Whoever eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. To be un unworthy or to do something in an unworthy manner, um, it, it literally means that whatever that thing or whatever is done, it's lacking value. A decision or a lifestyle or a way of life is, is not valuable. It's lacking value. Get this. The word in its original context means that it's not attractive to praise. Now, does that sound familiar? We were just talking a little earlier where Paul says, I can't commend you in this, in the instruction that I'm giving you. You see, what Paul is saying is that the way that we live our life can be attractive to the presence of God. Just last week, um, we had a, a guest speaker, Roy Morgan, and he, he said, this is, I love this statement, but he said, hey, hey guys, God's presence is always here. The Holy Spirit's presence is here, but we get to welcome him. We get to welcome him. And so it's not just simply an acknowledgement of the fact that God's presence is here. It's this, uh, this thought process that we actually get to welcome him in our lives with the way that we live, with the decisions that we get to make. And when we do those things, when we live a way that is honoring to the Lord, that becomes attractive to God's presence. And Holy Spirit goes, I, that, oh, I like that. <laughs> I can rest over there. I can set up shop right here. Now, I'm not talking about your salvation. You're assured. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're assured in your heart. You're going to heaven. You've got your ticket, right? But I'm talking about living a life that is honoring to the Lord. That's where, where God, as in the form of the Holy Spirit, says, I want to rest on that. I want to empower that life. And so the choices that we make, God goes, I I want to praise that because it's God in you. It's not you. It's Jesus Christ 
empowered by the Holy Spirit living his life out in you. So he says, if you live in an unworthy manner, if you drink of the, of the cup, eat of the bread in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty concerning the body and the blood. Guilty means that you have become ensnared, that you've gotten entangled in something. It, it literally means like you're, you're walking down the road and something comes up beside you and attaches itself to you. Um, yes, Lord, I won't do that again. I'm so sorry. Um, the, uh, have you ever seen, like, I, I went to the beach not too long ago, and, um, it, like, I saw where this uh, kid had, amen, had uh, a jellyfish that, like, attached itself. You ever seen that? I saw one on YouTube, like, no lie, where uh, there was a, a squid or an octopus or something, and it had, like, attached itself to this dude's leg. You can look it up later. It's really gross. Um, but, like, like when, when it says that, that you live your life in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty concerning the body and the blood. That's the word picture, is that something that's unworthy has literally attached itself to you. You've become ensnared or entangled in that thing, right? Scripture tells us that we're supposed to run a race, not be easily entangled by sin. He says, you've become guilty concerning the body and the blood. Well, why are we guilty concerning the body and the blood? What does the body represent? The body represents freedom. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. It's the bread of life. He goes on, I'm jumping ahead, but I, I feel like I should go ahead and say this. And in John chapter 6, Jesus talks to, to the people that are around him. He says, I'm the bread of life. You want to talk about bread? I'm the bread. I'm the manna that God provided for you every single day. So, when you're, you, so, so that's what the body is. The blood is Jesus' blood, which establishes a new covenant. His blood covers our past, present, and future sin. sin excuse me. And so what he's saying is when you walk in a way that is unworthy, sin shows up, mess shows up, division begins to show up, and it attaches itself to you, and you become entangled, and the body and the blood have lost the power for people to actually look at your life and go, wow, that person is attractive. And I don't mean good looking. I mean like the way they live their life. There's something different about who they are. They've got cancer, but they're still living. They've lost their job, but somehow they still have joy. They're going through junk in their life, but somehow something is unexplainably attractive in the way that they live. That's what Paul is calling us to, to live a, man, a life that is worthy of the manner of the body and the blood of the Lord. But he says in Corinth, they weren't doing that. So what do we do? It says, let a person examine himself. Now see, y'all thought this was a message about hellfire and condemnation. I was going to break bad on y'all and talk about how ugly, dirty, rotten sinners we all are. Well, guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, that was true but it's not anymore. The word examine means look for the good. The purpose of an examination is to find the good. 
That's what the original word meant, is to hunt for the gold in the person. He says, let a person examine himself and then eat of the body of the bread and drink of the cup. You see, it's testing with intent to improve, to approve. We got to look for the good. We got to call that out. And so what happens in our lives is whenever we're living our life day by day as a body, as a church, as a, as a family, as an individual, literally, if we bring our life under the body and the blood, we submit ourselves under the life and the covenant of Jesus Christ, and we say, hey, God, what do you see? Hey, God, will you examine me? What do you see? And what happens is God begins to call out the identity of who you are in Christ. You might have sinned yesterday, and God reminds you, when Jesus died on the cross, that sin was covered past, present, and future. If you're walking in a manner that is unworthy and you've become untangled with sin, what you do is you take that to God and you say, hey, Jesus, what do I do with this mess? And Jesus says, oh, yeah, I paid the price for that. You're free. You don't have to be obedient to a sin that easily entangles you anymore because I paid for that in the sacrifice. It's taking the very fabric of who we are and come, making it obedient to Jesus. We're giving it to him and saying, God, you tell me about my life. Examine me. And instead of us being afraid that God is going to judge us and throw some kind of lightning bolt and, and whatever and make us pay, what God tells us is, hey, remember when I sent Jesus? His perfection has covered you. Now allow his perfection to cover you. Moment by moment, day by day, allow that perfection to cover you. And when you do that, you are eating from the bread of life and you are drinking from the cup of the new covenant. You are literally letting Jesus' life be lived out in you. It's a choice that we get to make day in and day out. He says, for anyone who drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. If we aren't allowing the body of Christ, the body and the blood of Jesus to literally cover every part of our life, then what begins to happen is we begin to live in fear of judgment. I lived this way for a long time as a Christian. I used to come into settings like this and I'd be like, give me a corner to hide in because God's going to make me pay. There's some junk that's going to, I am un, I am so dirt, I am so screwed up. I don't know what to do, God. Get me out of here. I don't like this. I always lived under this impending doom until I allowed the real good father that loves me intimately, that sent his son because the word says that I am a craftsmanship. You are a craftsmanship. You're divinely and uniquely made. Scripture says you're the apple of God's eye. That's why he sent Jesus for you to pay a perfect sinless price to cover every past, present, and future sin. So therefore, when we come into places like this, even if sin has attached itself, let the Lord get that thing off and worship him with all that you have. And in those moments, that's where God says, that is so attractive. I love that. 
And guess what? You don't, get to, you don't have to just do that here at church. You can do that when you wake up in the morning. You can do that when you're at work. You can do that with your, when you're with your friends. The purpose of what Paul is talking about is, guess what? We get to do this as a body in unity. And so instead of the church being a place where people go, oh, I can't go there, man. There's a bunch of judgmental heretics, a bunch of crazy people. They get to walk in and encounter the love of God by our hands and our feet. Because we just remind them how good our dad is. And how he's covered our sin. And how we get to walk with him. He goes on and says, when you cast judgment on yourself, which is what's happening there, that's why many of you are weak, ill, and have died. Did you hear that? Like, that's intense. Paul was saying that something natural was actually happening to the people of Corinth. They were getting weak, they were getting sick, and they were dying. That's the progression. One day you wake up and you feel weak. You do that long enough and eventually you get sick, you get infirm. You do that long enough and eventually you die. That's not just spiritual, that's actual naturally, that's like what was happening. You see, here's what happens in our lives. We accept Christ, and it's like, it's like all of a sudden we get welcomed into this impenetrable force. This, this hum, like picture this humongous wall that cannot be destroyed, can't be broken into, none of that stuff. And we're like, oh my gosh, I love it in here. This is so beautiful. This is amazing. God, thank you for making me, for covering me, for protecting me. You're my provision, God. And then all of a sudden life starts happening, Right? You lose your job, you have an issue in your marriage, you, you know, a sin comes along, like whatever it is. And all of a sudden, that wall, that stronghold that you felt like was so impenetrable, all of a sudden looks a little cracky. And all of a sudden, you start noticing holes in it. And Paul was saying that was actually happening in the collective body. And then where you used to feel strong, all of a sudden, you don't feel quite so strong anymore. And if you don't feel strong long enough, eventually you get sick. And if you stay sick long enough, eventually you die. What blows my mind is I have sat in hospice rooms and I've watched people who their flesh is going, but they are more alive than I am. I've also sat in hospice rooms where I've seen people give up I don't know about you, but I want that type of life. When I can look in someone's eyes and I see their flesh dying, but yet their body doesn't matter because their spirit is alive. Paul says, don't bring judgment on yourself. Don't live condemned. Don't live broken. Because when you do, you are allowing cracks for the enemy to come in and attach himself to you. You might actually physically get sick because of it. I've made myself physically sick because of sin in my life. He says if we judged ourselves truly, get this, we would not be judged. When you take your judgment to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm so unworthy. I'm such a train wreck, God. 
And God takes that judgment and says, who told you that? Because the person I'm looking at is a confident warrior that is made in my image and is worthy to be in my kingdom. That I paid a great price to be in this kingdom. And I want you to come home, my son, my daughter. You're a beautiful princess. You're wonderfully made. Whenever we take our judgment to God, he says, oh, oh yeah, I don't, I don't judge you. As a follower of Jesus, I paid for that. I paid for that. The moment you said yes to Jesus is the moment all of my judgment went away. So who are you listening to? Whose voice are you listening to? There's been so many times I've gone to God and I'm like, man, I totally messed up. And God says, who told you that? Who told you that? You're not a train wreck. <laughs> You're not. It's like our immune system. Like, think about this for a minute. So, when we begin to get sick, or when an antigen, something that's foreign, enters our body, our immune system rises up and begins to fight it. It's like when you go to the doctor and he says your white blood cell count is up, right? Our white blood cells and our leukocytes and phagocytes and T cells and high school biology. Anybody currently there? Praise the Lord. Um, but, uh, but he says he, or when, your, when your immune system begins to rise up, and the purpose of that immune system is to overtake that thing that's foreign that's in the body, right? I, I love that it's called a white blood cell because literally like white, it's purity. Paul says the choices that you make, the factions that are happening in the body, in your home, in you, in, in your own life, the factions that create division will be tested and they'll be proved genuine if they're from the Lord. And so what happens in our life is as we attempt to allow our life to be an offering to God, our white blood cells go to battle, which is the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ's perfect righteousness is existing in your very DNA right now. And as you choose to live your life out, even if you make a decision that is contrary to God, what you do is you say, hey, Lord, is this honoring to you? And the white blood cells rise up and they take that thing that's not of God and it says, no, that's out. Don't do that. Don't operate that way. Don't live that way. It's the power of the Holy Spirit living on us because our immunity to sin begins to fight off that stuff. And in that immunity, what it breeds is unity. We become one when we live that way. Because Christ in me and Christ in you cannot not exist together. The Spirit of God in you and the Spirit of God in me. Even if I believe differently or I think differently or I have a different opinion about something, guess what? The Spirit of God in me and the Spirit of God in you must coexist because God's Spirit creates peace anywhere it goes. And so when you look at your life, when you look at your family, when you look at the way that you're living, is there peace? Is there wholeness? If not, your immune system needs to raise up 
And it's not you, it's God's spirit in you. So what's the answer? The answer is found in this middle little section where Paul talks about the body and the blood. <laughs> like, listen, this is so good. I mean, I know all the Bible's good, but like, this is so good. He says, for I received, think about this, Paul was not one of the original apostles. He got this from God. He wasn't at Passover with Jesus when this went down. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also des- to deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What's the significance of bread? Bread gives life. In the biblical culture, they, a lot of people didn't have the money for meat and uh, vegetables spoiled very quickly. And so the poor people could only get grain, really. And they lived basically on bread. And so that's some of us, right? Some of us can't live without bread, amen? Carbs for life. But like when, when, when Jesus broke that bread and said, this is, this is bread, this is for you, they got, like this is sustenance, this is life. If I don't have bread, I can't live. And so he was saying, I am the bread of life. I am what sustains you. My body broken for you, hanging on the cross. That Eat that. Eat the sacrifice of what Jesus did for you. When you take that in and you allow it to cover you, it's what gives life. It's not because it's my life. It's because it's Jesus' life being birthed up in me, welling up in me. It says in the same way, he took the cup. After supper, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. So why did he take wine? This is the 21 and under version, so we have grape juice, just so y'all know. But he took wine, and he said, this is, this is, this is my blood. So why blood? Because in the Old Testament, it was required that a blood sacrifice be given sin. Unfortunately, in the Old Testament, there actually is no covering for intentional sin. There's coverings. You kill animals, you sacrifice for unintentional sin, but for intentional missteps, there's no covering. And so they had this thing called the Day of Atonement where they would take a goat and they would call it the scapegoat and they would take it to the edge of the city and they would literally put all the sin, symbolically all the sin on that scapegoat and push it out of the city and let it run. And the the thought process is like, hey, God, please take our sin and forget it out there. Jesus is saying, you don't have to do that anymore. There are no scapegoats. I am the blood of the new covenant. My perfect, sinless life will be poured out for you. And it will cover you completely. It will cover every area of your life. Past, present, and future. It's a new covenant. It's not an old covenant that's based off rules and regulations. It's a new covenant that says this is a relationship built on love because God came after you. And why did he use wine? Because wine was a symbol of victory. It was a symbol of celebration. Whenever a conquering nation would, would conquer a nation, they would come in and say, let's celebrate, let's party, let's, be, uh, let's remember the victory. 
And I love the first miracle that Jesus ever did. What was that? The wedding at Cana, right? He turned water into wine. Come on. He's saying this blood, my body broken, this blood poured out for you. This is the new covenant because I'm making my bride pure. I'm turning water into wine. There is going to be a celebration party like none other when we meet our Savior face to face. And we get to remember that today. And he says this, this blows my mind, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, listen to this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now why in the world are we not proclaiming the Lord's life? Why aren't we proclaiming his resurrection? Because you can't get to resurrection unless there's a death. You can't get to new life unless the old life goes. So why do we eat bread and drink juice in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus? Because literally, we are celebrating his death, saying, hey God, like, like I want to take everything that is, that, is, that is in my life and it's not of you and I want it to be dead. I want to be reminded that it is dead and gone. That you paid for that thing, you covered it. And when we literally take our life and we put it under the body the bread and the blood, the juice, we put it under that imagery of Jesus' death through our submission to that, through our death to that. God is honored for resurrection. We get to encounter a resurrected lifestyle. We get to live a life that breathes in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit.